You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me yet again is Paul Doroshenko. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, well, you know, nobody else got back to me that I invited this week. So I'm always the, I'm the default if nobody else agrees to come on. Exactly. You've had some very good guests. It's kind of hard to top those people that you've had. Well, I have, I have people I'm working on. Well, you got to keep pushing them, but I'm happy to be here. I enjoy it. Thank you. Um, this week, I wanted to blow your mind. I know you always complain to me that I just bring the topics upon you in the middle of the podcast and you're not prepared to talk about them, but I just learned a very interesting piece of information in traffic court on today, today, today. In traffic court? Yes. From a police officer, from a JP, yes, from, from a, a police officer. Somebody I know uh, probably, but it doesn't really matter who it is. Okay. What did you learn? I learned that there are now new forms being distributed to police with red covers that, uh, say explicitly on them, do not use until July 15th for the drug impaired driving administrative driving prohibitions. Aha. So, so there it is. There we do. We see the date. We knew July it was going to come. Do we have a photograph of it yet? Or do we have something else from no, it? No, we, we don't have anything like that yet. But what we do know is the date and the government has, uh, I assume before they rose for the summer, very sneakily implemented this and well, it's, said it's, nothing about it. it. They, they may not have signed it yet. It may be something that it's going to be signed by regulation that's sure. enacted as a result of regulation suddenly. Yeah. But remember that a lot of these tests depend upon things that are either not happening very often or are not being done at all in British Columbia. So it's interesting how they're going to actually enforce the drug impaired driving provision scheme. Well, they might be, you know, I mean, look, they, they did buy Drager drug test 5000s for a number of detachments. They may plan on using it this summer. They might plan on having roadblocks where they're employing that. Yeah, so, so they're going to do, knows? and we talked about this a long time ago, but just to recap what we're going to see as of July 15th, everybody, a 90-day driving prohibition for drugs. Oh, do you have the section? No, I don't have the section, oh. but I was... <laughs> I feel like I, you pulled I, out I some pulled, legislation. I pulled something out of my, my briefcase that I carry around there often. It's just, uh, it's actually an order of the Lieutenant Governor in Council enacting a piece of legislation, a different one that I was looking at. So I just wanted to say, that's probably how they're going to enact it on the well, 15th. Yeah. yeah but I just wanted to have the proper terminology. That's why I pulled it out of my briefcase. So There's these th things I carry in my briefcase, as you know. Yeah. Regina Brown and Murphy. Yeah, you yeah. carry a lot of strange stuff in your briefcase. <laughs> Three things that uh, you can get the prohibition for. One, blood drug concentration above the legal limit, which is insane. I can't believe they're still following through on this because we just saw, and you and I just talked about this last week, the THC study. Out of UBC. Rubbish. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. Yeah. And yet, here we are. We're going to prohibit people from driving for 90 days on the basis of something that researchers in this province have concluded poses no increase in your traffic safety risk. The problem is, think about the end game of that, okay? So, you're challenging that. Um, Do you want me to say it? Challenge it in court. What? Go ahead. Cash grab. <laughs> 
Kyla likes to say cash grab, and so do I. Um, are um, the <laughs> no? They, I mean, think of the end game with it. Think of the end game. What are you going to do? Okay, so you fire, file a challenge, uh, you know, petition uh, arguing that it's unconstitutional because of whatever, however you structure it, um, and you take it to court, and ultimately the court's going to say, yeah, but the government can do that. I mean, that's basically what we see with most of the decisions in our like at BC Supreme Court. They might throw it out, but when it gets to the Court of Appeal, they're just going to they're oh. just going to reinstitute it. And it looks so like they, the government can enact legislation, so they. They can pretty much do whatever they want because it's driving. Exactly. So you have no rights. Exactly. So that's what's going to happen with it when it gets to our Court of Appeal. It's only if it's ever going to make it to the Supreme Court of Canada. And it's not going to make it to the Supreme Court of Canada. So what? what Ooh, is the option? The know, option Paul. is... They're relying on the criminal code blood drug concentration regulations. And so you could backdoor a challenge to the... Federal regulations they, through the provincial they scheme. Can, they can cherry pick the statistics they want out of their own material that we never get a chance to look at, and they can yeah, make it look like they're saving thousands of lives. We have tons of evidence to show that we, blood drug uh, concentrations for THC have no measurable impact. I think the only way to succeed with this is to embarrass the hell out of the government. Well, I mean, obviously that's what we're going to do. And I'm jumping. Now. I'm jumping ahead. I'm jumping ahead. You probably have something else. That no, you well, I was before. telling you the three things you can get them for. Please. Recapping why you would get a drug-impaired driving prohibition in British Columbia. Number two, a combined blood drug or blood alcohol concentration above the combined legal limit. So remember, you can have less THC and less alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, and number three, the one that pisses me off the most is the drug recognition evaluation test corroborated by a blood or urine test showing the presence of the drug. Plus some poor driving. Presence. Presence. Mere presence. Mere presence. And, and how are they going to test driving. it? How are they going to test it? Are they going to urine test with a urine cup to show the presence? Or how are they going to say the presence? I don't know. Dipstick in a urine probably. Are they going to come back and issue it to you two months later, or six months later, after they've tested your blood at the RCMP lab? Yeah. If um, they draw blood or urine, if they've collected urine? I don't know. I, but Did they keep that urine cool in the fridge? Well, if they kept it cool in the remember, fridge, was Paul, it, did somebody mistake it for apple juice? This is an administrative scheme, so you don't have the right to disclosure like that. Yeah. Um, and you don't, you know, they'll tell you they tested your urine and your urine showed cocaine in it, so therefore you have disclosure of the case against you. Prove your urine didn't have cocaine in it. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good now, luck with that. Um, there's a two-part dispute mechanism. So the first part requires you uh, requires the officer to establish that you had the blood drug concentration or the blood drug and alcohol concentration, or for the latter one, that the DRE evaluation was done properly by a qualified officer and the opinion corresponded to the drugs that were detected in the bodily sample. Oh, this is how? all so hokey. It's all so fucking hokey. Well, it's totally <laughs> hokey because how do you establish, in the absence of cross-examination or a video or, what, training adjudicators how to do DRE evaluations, how do you establish you did it correctly? Yeah. How do you? Like, you you write down all the steps you took? Doesn't well, mean you did it correctly. If, if you... If you, you have. I don't know, know why I say if you... Since you've read as many drug recognition evaluation opinions uh, in police reports as I have, you and I both know that it's a cut and paste job. They just copy and paste everything and then slot in the different symptoms. But all the steps they followed are cut and paste. Or, check, or just check boxes. Check boxes. Yeah. The, they'll do the DRE face sheet. Must have been done correctly because they filled out the face sheet. 
Oh, it's amazing. So if the officer establishes one of those things, then the burden shifts to you to prove why the prohibition should be revoked. Um, so you have to prove that your blood drug concentration or combined blood drug and alcohol concentration wasn't over the limit, that the drugs um, were uh, taken after driving finished and in circumstances where you didn't expect to be given a blood or or <laughs> urine test. So that's the, there's the same as yeah. the yeah, two hour thing. That the, the DRE was not conducted properly or not conducted by a qualified officer or that the test didn't confirm the presence of the drug the officer identified. I mean, the last part there might be easy to prove. You might be able to say, okay, well, he said that it was um, a cannabis, but an opiate showed up in my, uh, in my urine. So therefore his opinion wasn't confirmed. Confirmed. That one might be the only way that you could easily, on the conceivable information they can disclose to you, prove your case. I don't see any of it easily, uh, but I do well, see. I, mean, I see. I see a. I see an avenue of opportunity that I'm. Sure. You're already smiling about, and you know how to exploit. Yeah, and the fourth one is that you can prove that you were impaired not by drugs or alcohol or both, but by a medical condition. So that requires you to have medical evidence, which brings us back to the problem that everybody is facing right now in this reverse onus thing in our roadside prohibition schemes, which is that medical evidence is routinely just tossed by the adjudicators for spurious reasons. And that's a big problem. And you know, I, the reason actually I've been carrying around this, this order of the Lieutenant Governor and Council is because if you are required to get a, uh, uh, blow box and interlock in your car. Uh, all you have to do, all you need theoretically on the basis of the regulation to establish that you shouldn't have to have it is a letter from a doctor, simple letter from a doctor saying that you couldn't do it. Yet, if you get an IRP for refusal, uh, a letter from the doctor is not going to do it. Like it, that will not be enough for you to have your IRP revoked as a result of the reverse onus situation. Mm -hmm. um, so how are they going to deal with it uh, when it comes to these? Now, my question is, uh, and you probably know the answer, um, is it a reverse onus situation or is it just like an ADP where it's a balance no, it's of probabilities? A, it's a two-part, so it's a balance of probabilities, but it's a two-part um, a, a two part onus the way I read it. First, the officer must establish that you fit within one of the categories that makes you eligible for the prohibition. And then if the officer's case establishes that, so if there's sufficient evidentiary basis to support the case for the prohibition itself, then the burden shifts to you to prove why the prohibition should be revoked. So basically they fill out the form. Yeah. And then And if they and then <laughs> fill the, it out correctly. And then the then you're fine. and then the burden is on you to yeah. establish. And what we find with the superintendent's tribunal, because they view themselves as a quasi arm of the police, is that you've got to establish your case basically beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Well, good luck, though. Like, I'm sorry, but where are the doctors that are super enthralled at the idea of having all these people now rushing into their offices to get a medical opinion that their symptoms exhibited roadside were not caused by drugs or alcohol, but were in fact caused by some medical condition they suffer from? Well, we need to find uh, Dr. Nick Riviera. <laughs> Dr. Riviera, Dr. Hi, Nick everybody. Riviera. Is he dead? Hey, Dr. Nick. I have no idea. I off. stopped watching The Simpsons 20 years ago when it got bad. Okay. Well, um, yeah, so that's coming July 15th. I also heard, just if you want the gossip on the podcast. July podcast. 15th. Gossip, yeah. July 15th. Beware the Ides of July. Now, the interesting thing you should know if you're listening to our uh, podcast here is that... Um, 
a year and a half ago, Kyla arranged for a drug recognition evaluator, police trainer, guy who used to train the police and still gives this to come and give us a crash course. Of course, you cannot become a DRE, a drug recognition right. evaluator, unless you are a peace officer. You can't be so you designated. Can't, you can't be designated. Canada. But yeah. we've taken we've taken the crash course version of it, which we did after we also took the standardized field sobriety test full course. Um, so um, the time is coming now, and uh, we've been able to use our training actually quite effectively mm -hmm. so far. That When I took the standardized field sobriety test training, I had no idea that I would end up with a case uh, only weeks after completing it. Yeah. So it's been useful. You it's been useful. also find on my blog on kylolee.ca the 12 weeks of DRE miss, which I did in the 12 oh, yeah, weeks you... leading up to Christmas this year. I wrote a blog post every Thursday explaining each of the 12 steps of the drug recognition evaluation and where they are likely to produce false results. You should um, do a summary of that linking back to it on your website. Oh, yeah. Well, we could do it on, we could yeah, do it on, we could do it on Vancouver criminal yeah. law. Yeah, let's um, well, write that. I can write that. Um, you okay. did a good job. I did. Yeah, That's if anybody's good. listening, you should go find that. Um, anyway, the other, the gossip. I wanted to tell you the gossip because okay, this gossip, is the hilarious Gossip is part. good. Gossip is good. So they distribute the forms, you know, a month in advance of the legislation coming into force in effect. No, no, no. The forms are not wrong, but they tell the police, do not use these until July 15th. What do you think happened? Somebody used it already. Oh, yeah. Yep. A number of phone calls were made to police officers advising them that their prohibitions that they issued were cancelled because there was no statutory authority to issue them and that they needed to wait for the go date. You'd think they could read the front of the folder that they you came in. You would think. But, but look, look at the, the forms that we see out there. Look at the forms we see out there. And we've seen this before. We're seeing, we're st we still see old, old IRP forms show up every once in a while. Um, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. No. The uh, the last thing I want to say is that I am told that with the new forms, there is a change to make the seven-day dispute period very explicitly clear to people. So uh, if that's true, I haven't seen them yet, but if that's true, I would like to thank Mike Farnworth, who I know doesn't listen to podcasts, although did come on this podcast, because he said he'd do it, and if he did, that makes me happy. There's a few things they could do that could just be fairer. Uh, and that's, that's one, one like hiding the fact, making it in the smallest print possible that you've only got seven days. Um, it's just really unfair to people. I mean, yeah. if you actually stand referring, behind your... Referring to it as your right of review as opposed to like how to dispute this. Yeah. So it's using words that people who are maybe not so familiar with English don't understand. Yeah. It's been a... That's been a... Like so many of the little... The little jerk-like unfairness things that mm -hmm. uh, come in the IRP scheme and the ADP scheme. Uh, both have just irked me. And, they, they, and, you know, the government's not liked that I was uh, the angry guy that I've been. Um, and, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, they had it coming. A lot of my criticisms over the years, all of my criticisms over the years, from my perspective, they had it coming. Okay. So that was the first thing I wanted to talk. Now, you had kind of hinted at. Gossip. Just now. No, not gossip. No, no I'm just, I want more gossip. I like talking. I like hearing more gossip. Well, sorry, I don't have any more. Kyla. <sighs> Um, you had just hinted uh, at what the Court of Appeal will do, and I feel like you must have some kind of basis for why the Court of Appeal would rule a certain way. Do I do you, do I come across as too negative about the Court of Appeal? I, I listened no. to the podcast last week, and I thought, oh, 
you know, it's not, I don't sound like the uh, enthusiastic supporter of our court of appeal. I know that I've heard that two thirds of the cases that are appealed from our court of appeal that get to the Supreme Court of Canada are overturned. And a lot of people claim that that's a really bad trend and that no other court of appeal has that. But, you know, from the other perspective, those are only ones that are appealed. A, so that's disconcerting if like people are just not thinking of appealing because, you know, they can't and maybe they should when it's two thirds of the time they're overturned. But then the other hand, you know, maybe those are only cases that really should be appealed. So I, you know, I don't know that you can take much from it. When people make that criticism, I, I can see two sides of the story. Sure. But what I wanted to get you to say, and since Was. you're not going to say it, I'm going to say it. The Court of Appeal ruled on Monday this week about the constitutionality of the reverse onus provisions in the IRP scheme. And, and we called it. <laughs> but. Well, yeah. I mean, I was kind of hoping. I was really hopeful that they would be more explicit about whether or not you have um, like a right to get more disclosure under like a procedural fairness obligation that's triggered because of the application of the burden. I, I just disagree with them. I just disagree with them. But that's the law. Um, you know, the, um, yeah. the government's argument was that there was a lack of clarity. We never found any lack of clarity. We never found that ever being a problem. Nope. Like even, Every adjudicator's like, decision said. Yeah. So, I mean, then the government came along. And this, I mean, this is the upsetting thing, okay? Sort of the cynicism behind it that you can never express in court or get into the court. You know, when the, when the decision came down from the Court of Appeal about... Uh, the seven day window to file for review, the court said, you know, wow, this is really unfair, but you know, not a constitutional violation. So there's nothing we can do. Government can write bad law. Well, they, you know, when that came out, the government was criticized and Suzanne Anton came out and said at that point, we're going to make the law more fair. And instead of making the law more fair, all they, they did, they made it less fair by reversing the onus and putting the onus on you to prove basically beyond a reasonable doubt, but that's not what it says in the law, but to prove your case when it came to an immediate roadside prohibition, 90 day driving prohibition. Well, it seems and like so court... she did the opposite. And then when it gets to the court of appeal, you know, here we're looking at it and it's clear that it's, that it's change things. It seems like the court though, like in every case, they're just like, well, it seems it makes sense that you should have the burden because it's all information. Every single defense is information that would be, you know, within your knowledge. If you burped, you would know. If you drank only two beers before you drove, you would know. If you weren't told about the second test, you would know. If you didn't get a different second test machine, you would know. But you don't always know. There's no obligation on the police to make it clear to you that you're using a different machine. Nine times out of ten, they lock you in the back of the police car and then get you out, so you have no idea what the fuck they were doing. Um, you know, you have these situations where there's issues with the maintenance, functioning, operation, reliability of the, the devices. The person who does the, the, the calibration. who does the, the calibration yeah. has access to. Right now, we're seeing on the certificates of qualified AlcoSensor FST calibrator, a section that says device messaging that says that um, up until uh, the end of July, they're going to be reprogramming the devices to give a different sequence of status messages than what's listed on the technical So it might be sheet. right, might be wrong. So <laughs> it could be one of the two. It doesn't tell you which of the two that device has been programmed to have. And so you don't know. And they don't have to tell you. And that, to my mind, is just so absurd. And I don't know why. Like, we had cases where there were facts related to operational issues that would be solely within the knowledge of the police. And they still could not see that point. Like, do you have to be as experienced with an Alcosensor FST as you or I are 
um, in order to to meet your burden? Because if that's the case, that's not a burden that an ordinary person can meet in a tribunal that's selling itself as designed for the self-represented litigant. I, I just sorry, feel my I, rant. I feel so sorry for people who try and do their own IRP hearings. Well, and it's going to be mean, worse. It's, it's got to just be humiliating because you go through that and then you just get kicked in the ass. And it's going to be worse when they go and do the drug recognition evaluation because you're not just combining technical things like how to do a, a walk and turn test. You're also combining medical things, what a measurement of blood pressure is, how to measure, measure pupil size, what's normal pupil size. And what about someone like me? My pupils have been two different sizes for at least two months now. I don't know how long, I don't know when it started. The MRI that, said you were fine. Well, I had an MRI. Uh, I've had a CT scan. I don't have the results. I have a head. Oh, you had a CT scan, you had a CT scan. I don't have yeah. the results yet. Um, they would have called you if there was a problem. I assume I'm not dying, but I'm also not on drugs. So, but with my weird screwed up pupils, that's going to affect me negatively in a drug recognition evaluation test. As we know, I can never provide a reliable sample to any ASD as a result of my... But you know that you burp. I didn't know I had pupils that were different size until I had the DRE Until somebody did the DRE to you. Yeah. So, but you passed. Well, yeah, but I know how to do it, so I know how to cheat. I mean, in, in our in our worst case scenario, when I, we were at our our had used cannabis for our, the purpose of our testing, we both passed. I just, I mean, of course, it, you, that, that, just because you pass in one circumstance doesn't mean you're going to pass in another. Of how, course, because it's completely subjective. How can you throw? to a layperson, the idea that this 12-step quasi-medical, quasi-legal, quasi-physical, quasi-technical test and highly subjective the, test. Highly subjective test and put the burden on them to articulate clearly enough for an adjudicator who's also not qualified to administer the test that it wasn't done correctly. Like that to me, and, and also how much of it do you have to prove wasn't done correctly? Like if you show that they didn't do the, the check for uh, injection sites properly, does that invalidate the whole test? If they say it's cannabis impairment and not many people are shooting up their weed? Like, what, like where is the line? How, like, this is a completely undefined ground of review. And if the, the borders of the ground of review aren't clear, then what happens in administrative law is it, it's left to the tribunal to decide, which means the tribunal doesn't give notice to the people about the ambits of the defense that you can raise. So you just flail around attempting to raise defenses until you can, or you and I as lawyers can discern where the boundaries are, but nobody else can. Because also let's not forget they're not publishing their decisions online, and they view themselves as a branch of law enforcement that shouldn't have to disclose that information because it might let people win in their review hearings and thwart the police. You know, I think about uh, SNC-Lavalin and things like that, and I think about, you know, how there are occasions when, I mean, we saw this big story about... Um, about uh, civil forfeiture this week and it's just disgusting but uh, you know you think about circumstances where okay maybe an administrative scheme of some sort would make sense and maybe you know you know and then i just you, know, you see things like this and you you come to the conclusion that it's very hard to persuade people and persuade myself that i should have confidence in the scheme designed by the government for the government's benefit you know, that's the thing I like about the court. The court generally is not designed by the government for the government's benefit. The, the court's court... not a revenue collector. Well, they so have no interest in it. back to cash grab. 
Ugh. Anyway, so July 15th, prepare for doom. Well, I mean, also prepare for doom if you're a hire cannabis a user. Hire a um, lawyer. Hire a lawyer. Um, the, um, it doesn't have to be us, but, you know, you can call us. <laughs> well, we heard it here first. We do have the Drager Drug Test 5000. So. Yeah, we are trained in the drug recognition evaluation. Although I have seen other places, other lawyers that claim that they're certified. You can't be certified. You can't be. You can't. So if so. any lawyer is claiming they're certified, they're not certified unless they've they're been trained. But they've not been trained. Maybe trained. I don't know. But. Yeah, they can be trained. Again, you cannot be a drug recognition evaluator unless you are a a peace officer. B have taken the one month training course. And C designated by the Attorney General of British Columbia. Yeah. Hey, so. David Eby, feel free to designate me. <laughs> you haven't had the full training. I could do it. Well, you, I could do it. I know how to do it. You've, well, not only have you uh, have you taken the short training, you've also worked with Jan uh, um, when we had the uh, Drager Drug Test five thousand tests. So, yep. Um, and, and also, it's and I helped. and he he was certified. I guess he's not certified anymore. He's I assisted he's not Lance designated. in um, uh, in L.A. Exactly. When yeah, you did. There. Yeah. So then you did live testing there. That I was did. that was fascinating. Yep. That was an interesting thing. Anyway, moving on um, to something that won't have me involved in angry rants and really, I think, hits on your point of how the courts are not concerned with being the revenue collector of government. Um, an encouraging judgment uh, in... Batman. Yeah. I was going to say, I love the name of the case. Batman. and Adam West. Adam West, Batman. Yes. Uh, I think he passed away the real one. Oh. recently yeah well that's too bad he's the real batman i told my kids he's the real batman and for years my son believed me that he was the real batman well that's like a running joke in family guy because adam west is the mayor of whatever town they live in and he believes truly believes that he is batman i love adam west yeah he's great anyway so adam west got a ticket hired a lawyer um, and his lawyer went to court and I guess there was like, um, an allegation of some, uh, bad, uh, driving cause he got a 90 day IRP at the same time and he was doing excessive speed, but the officer gave him a break and gave him a regular speeding ticket. He shows up to court and he has a lawyer appear for him on his behalf at court, uh, Marshall Putnam, um, who, um, essentially uh, told the court that... Re-enters a guilty plea for him, doesn't he? Yeah. He goes yeah. and says he's not he's not disputing the ticket any longer. He's going to enter a guilty plea. And the court says, great, you are convicted of this... Uh, well, your client is convicted of this... Um, he was appearing as agent for Adam West. Yes. Uh, who was busy out, busy out there <laughs> driving the Batmobile. Um, so he says that uh, he's going to prohibit the guy. Adam, for two months. Batman? Yeah. Oh my GP God. Think about, think court. about, think about the implications for Gotham City. I know. How do you drive the Batmobile if you're prohibited? Exactly. <laughs> so, I guess a Robin could drive for two well, months. The police period. have never been able to identify Batman, so I'm not sure that they would be so concerned about Batman's driving while prohibited. Hmm. In any event. Um, so the 
the traffic court judicial justice of the peace essentially went on, goes on about how bad the driving was. There were other people in the vehicle. He was impaired by alcohol. Don't forget, he already got the 90-day piece. He was already punished for that. And he was speeding in the excessive zone, um, even though the charge itself doesn't reflect that. So he's deserving of a further driving prohibition. So prohibited him from driving on the basis of the traffic ticket that he just pled guilty to in traffic court, that if yes. he had just paid it, he wouldn't have got a driving probation. Yeah. Is that so, what you're saying? If he had paid is, it, they had mailed in a check, he would have just got a... Yeah. If he this, had, this is an ongoing issue for us. It is. Because, because we get this threat mm -hmm. from time to time. Um, police. From police and, and, and JPs, where you've yeah. got to go in there and explain why the guy shouldn't be prohibited from driving, and they could have just paid the ticket. And to me, that's a big disincentive to people for, from asserting their right to have a trial. You have a right to have a trial. You have a yeah, right to hear the evidence. He didn't want to have a trial. He wanted to go and plead guilty in the end, decided not to have a trial. Yeah. Probably because the evidence was strong. Went um, Batmobiles fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> and loud. He's charged with regular speeding, which is one kilometer an hour over the limit. And the allegation is 43 kilometers in excess of the speed limit. So it's not that hard to prove the threshold you have to prove on those facts. No. Um, I mean, the officer maybe did him a favor, although I think the ticket and the IRP together is always a bit of a like, cheap shot. I think so, too. Most many officers will agree with you there. And I, yeah. how many of those have we ever had where they actually proceeded with them? A few. Yeah. Um, unique circumstances usually. I haven't, I haven't had any, and it's always your IRPs, but yeah, the um, unless we well in cases that we've won. So he appeals, but it's never happened to yeah. me. Let's focus never on the case me. here. Okay. <laughs> so, Mr. West appeals his sentence, saying a one month driving prohibition is ridiculous. Da -da 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 -da. <laughs> da -da 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 -da. Yeah. Okay. okay. And he makes two arguments. One is that basically it's a joint submission. Because the officer's taking the position and giving out the ticket that the Crown is asking for or $196 fine, and he's going and pleading guilty on the basis of that, and it's implicit that it's a joint submission. That's a good <laughs> argument. Pow! Yeah, okay. Um, and then the, um, the, the other argument he made was that uh, it wasn't available to the uh, JP to impose the driving prohibition in those circumstances um, because he basically just cut off Mr. West's lawyer. Um, the, the court's sympathetic to that too, but they actually go to the legislation and they say, the, the judge, uh, Judge Dev, or Justice DeLay, um, looks at the Offense Act, which says that basically if you file a ticket in dispute and then you don't show up to court, you are deemed to be guilty of that ticket and the allegation or the fine is not to be uh, adjudged or determined in court and section 16 sub 1 of the offense act applies. So basically if, if you don't go to your court date for your ticket, the judicial justice of the peace has no power to make any decision about what happens uh -huh, with it. Uh -huh. That's also a good argument. Bang. Mm -hmm. So section 16.1 says that if you don't show up or if you have paid a portion of the ticket or if you don't dispute it within 30 days, you're deemed to have pled guilty and um, that you owe the ticketed amount on the ticket immediately payable to the government. So that would be it in that those circumstances it. where it's a deemed conviction, a deemed conviction, you, the 
But in this case, Mr. West's lawyer went to court and made submissions on the... What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You just walk out? Oh, well, you're, you're going to seek? Uh, I'm just going to turn around and walk out yeah, now. Like, peace out, your, your worship. worship. <laughs> I'm going to tie your hands and do yeah. it. It's unethical. Like, oh, we're taught as lawyers, you don't just turn your back on the court and walk out of the courtroom. Just because you're doing the ethical thing now, you can get a driving prohibition. Yeah. Oh. Then this I is guess. exactly what Justice DeLay says is stupid about the whole thing. He says, if defense counsel had simply chosen to walk away from the courtroom without advising that Mr. West was no longer contesting the ticket, the penalty would have been a fine of $196 as set out on the face of the violation. In these circumstances, it would be an affront to the fairness of the administration of justice if the courtesy of counsel in advising that Mr. West would no longer be contesting the ticket resulted in a higher penalty. Counsel's respectful approach to the judicial justice was countered by an abrupt, truncated reasoning process that simply penalized Mr. West for deciding not to contest the ticket. It offends fairness and decency to impose a higher penalty on an offender who chose to advise the court he was not disputing his ticket, as opposed to a lesser penalty to an offender that simply walked out of the room. God, that's logical and sensible. Logical, sensible, and also shows the court's not sitting there to be the revenue generator for the province. Well, They're well, going, well, what's fair? It's logical and sensible and soon to be overturned by the Court of Appeal. No. <laughs> oh, come no. on. Come All on. I have to do is appeal it. Do you think the Crown is really going to appeal that and take it to the Court of Appeal? And the Court of Appeal is going to go, no, yeah, counsel should have just like abandoned their obligation to keep the court apprised of the situation. Sure, they might say, look, it doesn't say in the Offense Act that they can't give a driving prohibition under those circumstances. And if the, if the government is seeking a driving prohibition, they should get it. Well, in fact, there is a very old Court of Appeal case that says pretty much just that, that if you go to court and you dispute your ticket, and you're given notice on the face of the ticket of what the penalty is, that it would be wrong to impose a higher penalty simply because you exercised your constitutional right to have the matter Yeah, but that was the Court of Appeal like 30 years ago. This yeah, is the Court of Appeal today. Ago. Yeah, this is the Court of Appeal today. It's a different court. I just think, you know, like this idea that people get punished more for showing up to court and we see this happening in courtrooms throughout the lower mainland all the time needs to stop and i'm really happy to see this decision from justice delay that's saying it's gotta stop i'm gonna throw this into the uh, ones i keep in my briefcase that i carry around tattered decisions yeah. <laughs> uh yes uh your honor my lord uh, your worship uh, uh, your <laughs> yeah. majesty i've got a <laughs> decision here that I photocopied 20 years ago. I don't know if it's still good law because I haven't noted it up because I, I got it out of a book. Because it makes sense. Yes, somebody was somebody was asking me about the books in our office downtown if they were real. It's funny, people ask that fairly often. Are those books yeah. real? Like what, they're a bunch of, you can, you can buy fake books? I you don't know, can. I suppose you can. But you can. No, they are all real and I'm the only one who uses them. That's not true. I looked up something in one of them one time. And lots of times I use them for B-roll. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, so they're flipping through a book for the sake of uh, some news story. No, I use them all the time because it's I go to find the old CCCs. But, I mean, it's they are becoming obviously increasingly not useful. But there are gems in there. Yes. Hard to believe, though, that that's the way that we used to do it. Um, that's the way we used to keep apprised on the law was trying to figure out what's in that book by going to some index and searching it somewhere. What an industry that's come and gone with technology. Yes. The books are beautiful though. All right. Well, 
and heavy to move. That's the Driving Law podcast for this wow. week. Wow. We don't have a crazy driver of the week. Well, I mean, there's, there is a story. It's kind of funny. It's not from here. Um, it's about a woman um, who was pulled over for uh, impaired driving in Tucson, Arizona. Or sorry, she wasn't pulled over. She caused a three-car pileup. And uh, this was in Tucson. And she's on body cam because sensibly the uh, officers in the U.S. wear body cams. And she's telling the officer, crying, I just want to get to my wedding. Um, and she's wearing a white dress and says it's her wedding dress. Um, and she says, I, I think that I'm getting married today. And I, I'm, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, anyway, the... Uh, skirt that she was wearing for her um uh for her wedding dress was not uh it was not uh, a full skirt she'd ordered it online and it was totally see-through oh so i don't think she was getting married so this sounds like a maybe a psychological problem or a concussion or something or alcohol yeah. or drugs yeah i think they determined in the end it seems that that she was not getting married at all and that she just made up this story about a wedding and was wearing some ridiculous wedding oh, well, dress. Well, she hit her head. I mean, that does happen to people. They look you at just, yourself and you're thinking to yourself, who the hell am I? And Pre-have a wedding dress on? that's not a real wedding dress that you ordered from some cheapo website. Well, she didn't. I'm sure she didn't plan to be dressed like that and having an accident. I mean... I think she did. I think the, the point is that the police theory of the case is that she drinks and drives all the time. And that she put on this wedding dress thinking that she'd get out of anything, saying she's just rushing to get to her wedding. Oh, that's a stretch. Could be. You never know. There's well, strange things that happen in I the world. Know. Strange people do strange things. That's a bit of a crazy driver. I had a crazy driver story this week, but I'll hold it. If okay. you invite me back next time, I will tell you then. All right. Well, tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. And if you need to reach either me or Paul, you can find us online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or uh, give us a call, 604-685-8889.